Turgy with a very special episode about the Don Knotts episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back. It is season two. We have returned. We are so happy to be here and so happy you're here with us. I'm David Levy. Here with me today are Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, Adam Grossworth. Now, before we get too far in today's episode, a quick note to let loyal listeners know that just like The Muppet Show did for their second season, we've made some tweaks to our format for our new season. Don't worry, we will still be covering everything we did before, but we've moved some sections around, split some up, redecorated a little bit, a nip here, a tuck there. We hope you like it. I know what's wrong with this show. What? It's the theater. What's wrong with it? The seats face the stage. <laughs> Christy, I understand that uh, you have a correction from our previous episode. I sure do. And it's that I can do math, you guys. <laughs> Yeah, so when we were uh, discussing the Blue Danube Waltz in the Mumenshans episode, I said that it was 10 years older than the Eiffel Tower because it was uh, it went viral, so to speak, at the 1867 World's Fair. And the Eiffel Tower uh, debuted at the 1889 World's Fair. Yeah, not 10 years, 22 years. So, yeah, math. Thank you. I've just been stressing about that for the last two months. Before and after. <laughs> it's it's fine. It's all relative. Yeah. Time is a construct. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. So before we get into season two, we want to take an opportunity to just reflect back on season one, say goodbye to some of our faves, and you know, sort of turn the page. So who has season one wrap up thoughts? Pour one out for Cleveland. Aww. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really going to miss George. We talked about Drew a lot, but like, as far as actual like characters who made an impression went, it's, it's George for me. Well, he had the most to do of all. Well, that's of them. yeah, that's why. Yeah. Although Hilda also, while not technically a Cleveland Muppet is a season one Muppet that we won't see again, who probably had the biggest impact on the show and I think I will miss her the most. Ditto. She she's got a way about her. Don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate that and we're about to discuss this more at length, but uh most of the Cleveland gang is enshrined in the credit sequence. So we do get to see them even if they don't do anything other than sing with the group. This is true. I was excited to to realize that. You know, and speaking of the theme song, and we'll talk about this more in a bit, uh, I find myself missing the extended version of the song that we get in season one, because season two has a much shorter version, which will take some getting used to. Also, what takes some getting used to is, my goodness, they've redesigned a bunch of the puppets, and now they look more like what I guess I have always known them to look like and what I had previously been used to, but my brain rewired itself over the last few months, and now, like... New Fozzie looks wrong to me. I miss yep. I miss wiggly ear, big jowled Fozzie, and uh, that that'll take some getting used to. Yeah, that season one face feels so much more expressive to me, and it it just seemed like it was more malleable. And New Fozzie feels too stiff. I mean, it's still Frank Oz being brilliant, but it's it's just not the same. The eyebrows are intense. <laughs> He looks like he looks elongated. Like he looks stretched out to me. Yeah, it's just a whole different shape. It's clearly the same character, but he's gotten a facelift. 
It's just weird because this is a, this design sticks, right? Or does he get does he change again? This is more or less the design that sticks. There are little tweaks here and there. Yeah, it's just weird that it looks weird, given that this is the one we've been looking at basically our whole lives. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the lower jaw, having seen him in season one where he's got a much more flexible face, and then now the lower jaw looks too big. But then in later years, I, I feel like the lower jaw just keeps getting more <laughs> jutting out, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, maybe that's why. Maybe it'll, it'll even out. It's just going to grow. Um. This is so, I don't know that I I don't miss I won't miss this necessarily but uh there are no more muppet morsels on the DVD so if if you um if you've disliked me saying the terrible terrible terribly branded muppet morsels uh we're done um which means I won't have to fight with my um computer's DVD player or um or PlayStation to play those anymore although I did this week we'll get into it but uh they were convenient for research <laughs> you know they were really horribly copy edited Alas, the morsels. And I feel like we must give the proper due to our friends, the Muppet Houses, who will not be seen again. Aww. Well, they, they peaked early. Aww. <laughs> you mean there was a ceiling on their humor? That's- Did it get draining after a while? Yeah. Speaking of terrible jokes, also sad to see Wayne and Wanda go. Yeah. Oh, I am really going to miss Wayne and Wanda. I, I, am, I am a true Wayne and Wanda fan. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I gained an appreciation for them these last few months. Well, we'll see them again, however briefly. You know what it is? I really appreciate a quick joke format. Mm-hmm. Like, my problem with something like At The Dance is that it always feels like it overstays its welcome to me. Wayne and Wanda, like, they're in, there's a quick joke, they're out, it's funny. It's not funny, it doesn't matter. We're on to the next thing. I appreciate that. And it's different every time. Like, it's the same idea every time, but the actual joke is different every time, as opposed to The Houses, which I also liked. But, like, The Houses is a is a corny set-up punchline every time, and Wayne and Wanda sort of required some inventiveness and... Maybe it's the set, maybe it's a prop, maybe it's a wind machine. You kind of have to know the song to really see the punchline coming. I like that about it. And I think the Muppet Newsman sort of takes their place in terms of that style of humor. And that's a positive change that I'm looking forward to because Newsman in the first season uh, will not miss that format. Yeah, with the out-of-place guest star in the corner. Kai, can you imagine if the houses went on for five seasons? Like how <laughs> labored it would be. Like he's an A-frame. Like, <laughs> no. I mean, they live on on Twitter. It's true. Do they though? Like that. Even that has seemed to run its course. There's just only so many jokes, right? And only so many styles of house you can turn into a non-joke. I think we've all come to have a very Deep and special appreciation of season one. Uh, I can't say that any other time in my life prior to this show was I able to really articulate what made the first season of The Muppet Show different from other seasons, and now I can. And uh, that's a skill that's going to last a lifetime. So practical. Uh, But with that, let's start talking about season two. Adam. Oh, nice segue. Smooth. Good blend. Mm. So we are here today to talk about Season 2, Episode 1 of The Muppet Show. This was taped the week of May 23rd, 1977. If you are somehow joining us for the first time, we are watching these, and Disney Plus is listing them in 
production order. So this was the first episode made. However, it did not air in the United States until November 28th, 1977, making it actually the 11th episode of the season that American audiences saw. The season premiered back in September, and as we were discussing, um, 77. The Muppet Show was syndicated in the United States, uh, but it did air mostly on CBS affiliates. It was followed on CBS by The Incredible Hulk at 8 p.m. On ABC, The Honeymooners Christmas special on this particular night. Uh, Obviously, that would not have been every week. On NBC, it's still followed by Little House on the Prairie. Uh, I did notice that the New York Times has started just calling it The Muppets instead of its full title. Um, And a thing that I just noticed looking at the New York Times uh, because childhood nostalgia um, in New York, uh, Star Trek was on at 6 on Channel 11, and then The Muppet Show was on at 7.30, and that just brought back a whole wave of nostalgia. I guess I must have eaten dinner at 7 in between those two things, but, you know, Monday nights were good. Um, Also premiering this season was Soap and Lou Grant, Chips, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island. Those were the uh, particularly notable shows that stood out to me. Let us know if I've missed anything. Uh, Also, Logan's Run, which I only mentioned because it came up on an earlier episode with Peter Ustinov, The Harvey Korman Show, the Richard Pryor Show, The Betty White Show, Bit of a Theme, and The Oregon Trail. I I don't know how much dysentery was involved, but it was uh, obviously a Western. I don't think it lasted very long. While we're talking about the launch of season two, there's some big changes afoot at The Muppet Show. The biggest change that I think we'll feel immediately is that head writer Jack Burns is out. Jerry Jewell is now promoted to head writer, and they've brought in a few other writers to uh, help share the burden. Also, a second director joins the team to split duties. Peter Harris has directed, I believe, every single episode we've seen so far, and he directed the episode we're going to talk about tonight. But starting with the Rich Little episode, we'll see Philip Casson also direct about uh, maybe a third of the episodes throughout the rest of the series. Dave Goles, the performer who does Gonzo, is now a full-time performer. Season one, he was splitting his time between performing and building in the Muppet Workshop, which is why Gonzo would often go missing for long stretches. And... As we mentioned, Aaron Oscar left the show. And so for the first few episodes starting next week, the Muppets will audition different women puppeteers to replace her before landing on Louise Gold in the Rich Little episode, who will stay for the rest of the series. And the workshop also has like quadrupled in size, which I think is immediately apparent <laughs> in the increase in quality of the, the puppets and the sets and, and all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. And of course, that's because The Muppet Show, huge hit. So in the first season where there was like a little bit of a scramble to get guest stars, now everyone knows it's a safe bet. It's a good thing for their career. So uh, I don't want to say the quality of the guest star increases because I feel like season one had pretty high quality guest stars, but it was easier for The Muppet Show to get bigger, more famous guest stars who weren't necessarily already connected to someone working on the show. Introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Other changes include never hearing that again during the theme song. Oh, yeah. But we are going to keep it because it's a good segue for us. This week, we're talking about Don Knotts, born Jesse Donald Knotts in Morgantown, West Virginia, July 21st, 1924. He was the youngest of four children. A timid and nervous child, he endured a difficult childhood with a schizophrenic father. But Don picked up ventriloquism as a hobby, and as a teenager, especially after his father died when he was 13, he blossomed into a class clown. 
At age 18, he left home for New York City. At his first audition, the casting director told him he'd never make it, so he retreated to West Virginia. Don was drafted, got assigned to an entertainment unit, and ended up touring the Pacific Theater as a ventriloquist to great acclaim. However, he soon realized the dummy got more laughs than he did, and he got very jealous and ended up throwing his dummy overboard while at sea to watch it drown in the ocean. I've seen that episode of Buffy. (laughs) (laughs) After the war, he went to the University of West Virginia, and when he graduated in 1948, he tried again in New York City and soon landed his first professional job, playing cowboy Windy Wales on Bobby Benson and the Barbie Bar Writers radio show. The uh, show was a big hit. It got adapted for TV, and Don was brought with it to do the same part, and at the same time got a role on the soap opera Search for Tomorrow. It turned out that both TV shows and the radio show all ended almost simultaneously, which was bad news for Don, but he got his big Broadway break uh, pretty soon thereafter in a play called No Time for Sergeants. He had uh, a couple of small parts, but that's where he met Andy Griffith, who recognized him as Windy Wales. The play was a hit, and... Both Don and Andy went on to do the movie, and they ended up becoming best friends and close collaborators for the rest of their lives. Next, Don took to the New York City club scene, which makes me wonder if he ever encountered Kay Ballard, because that's also where she was at that time. Uh, Who he did encounter, for sure, was Steve Allen, who discovered him, hired him to be a writer and performer for his show, which is really where Don became famous. He was on the Steve Allen show from 1956 to 1960. Uh, and that's also where he sort of refined his like nervous character, uh, which became really his calling card. As he was looking for his next opportunity, Don saw the pilot for the Andy Griffith show, and called up Andy and asked to become his deputy. And the rest was history. In 1961, he won an Emmy for the role of Barney Fife, Mayberry's deputy and the cousin to Sheriff Andy Taylor, the part played by Andy Griffith. And then he won the Emmy again in 1962, 1963, 1966, and 1967. It's interesting that he was the, he won five Emmys for that part. Those were the only five Emmys earned by the Andy Griffith show, which is considered one of the all time classics in television sitcom history. So he wasn't in the pilot. He was not in the pilot. Wow. Um, And I don't know how he saw the pilot, but uh, I heard him tell the story from his own mouth in an Annie biography special. So uh, I have to assume that that was true. Wow. He feels like such an integral part of it. That, that's crazy to me. Yeah, although I did rewatch the first couple episodes. And I'm not sure if the first episode was the pilot, but it's all about uh, Aunt B coming to live with Andy and Opie. And, uh, oh, my God, it's a heartbreaking episode. Like, it's, it is much more sappy and less funny than the show would become. Uh, but it's great television right out the gate. Uh, And that's on Amazon Prime, if you're interested. In 1964, Don had his first starring role on film in The Incredible Mr. Limpet, which is the film where I believe he gets turned into an animated fish. Based on its success, he was offered a five-picture deal, so he ended up leaving The Andy Griffith Show in 1965 to pursue this new opportunity. Uh, You may say, wait, but two of those Emmys you mentioned happened after 1965, and that's because he would return to Mayberry for guest appearances And that's where he got those last two Emmys. Uh, Like so many other Muppet Show guests, he did have his own variety show for one season on NBC in 1970. And he did appear as an animated version of himself in two episodes of the new Scooby-Doo movies in 1972. There it is. Starting in 1975's The Apple Dumpling Game, he made a series of comedies, mostly for kids, often for Disney, and often paired with Tim Conway. 
Uh, and this is where he was in his career at the time of the Muppet show. So in many ways, he makes much more sense as a guest star than some of the guests that we saw in season one. In his post-Muppet show years, he'd have two big television successes to come. The biggest, of course, was when he joined Three's Company in 1979, a couple years into the run after The Ropers left to star in The Ropers. Uh, and then in 1988, he once again joined Andy Griffith in Matlock, where he played a recurring role uh, until 1992. He continued to perform for the rest of his life, uh, with his last really notable role being the TV repairman in 1998's Pleasantville. Uh, Don Knotts died at age 81 on February 24th, 2006. Uh, so that's Don Knotts. Uh, you know, for me, both the Andy Griffith show and Three's Company were just sort of ever present on TV when I was growing up. So he was one of those just like always there comedy figures. And also I watched a bunch of those Disney movies like the Apple Dumpling Game and he was in one of the Herbie movies. So uh, he was he was like the real deal to me as a kid. Uh, how about the rest of you? I own a t-shirt with a picture of his face on it that was given to me as a gift. I will not be taking questions at this time. Uh, I think we've talked before about that. Uh, this was later. This was like junior high, high school, but like the, the after school block of reruns on TV in the like late eighties, early nineties for me. And yeah. this company was a part of that for sure. That's really my, my main association with him. Uh, and I'm sure I've seen those Scooby-Doo episodes as well because they were all on in perpetuity. Yeah, I, I grew up in and around Kentucky, and the Andy Griffith show looms large in the South. So, yeah, I'm similar to David. It, he, he was a presence with a capital P. Why don't you get me uh, David, what did you think of this episode as an episode? I loved this episode, and so much of it was so familiar to me. And I was convinced that's because some of these clips must have been on the VHS tapes that I had in the 90s. And I looked it up and they were not. Hmm. So I don't know if it's just that when I got the season two DVDs, I watched this a lot. Or it just really burned into my brain as a kid. But uh, I like a lot of the individual sketches and songs. And also, I think as a whole, the episode coheres in a way that few did up until now. And that was exciting for me. Christy? I mean, my first instinct impression was, heck yeah, baby, this is the Muppet Show. Like, it finally fully feels like itself, at least the version of it that exists in my memory. So it was really exciting. And even out of the context of where it is in the full run of the show, it's just a really fun episode. Don Knotts is very Muppety himself. And I think he's really thoughtfully deployed. I, I particularly think the choice to pair him with Fozzie is really inspired. So in summation, what a glow up. <laughs> <laughs> Michal. Uh, yeah, similar. I, I enjoyed this episode. I think it's a perfectly lovely episode of the Muppet show. I think I'm, I'm not as enthusiastic and quite as effusive as David and Christy, but it was great. Some elements of it are especially delightful. Uh, most especially Don Dots, who, as Christy said, has a very Muppety quality about him and a very flexible face. Yeah, I, I was also excited to see sort of those those elements that were not in season one finally arrive. But I don't think it's a great episode. It does have two of my all-time favorite things that The Muppet Show has ever done. They're in this episode. Uh, also, one thing that haunts my nightmares. And then also Don Knotts is here. So... You know, it, it's fine. Can't go um, wrong, except for that one bit that did. <laughs> except for that one bit that did. We will get into it. Uh, let's get into it. 
Well, they had no place to go but up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're back. It's a new season. We've got uh, new opening gags. There's Statler and Waldorf now making a gag instead of Fozzie, and Gonzo has uh, given up his mallet and taken up the trumpet. Also, the opening theme has gotten a bit of a makeover. We've also got our first scooter cold open, which is very exciting. Don Knotts! Don Knotts! 25 seconds to curtain, Mr. Knotts! Well, what are you doing hiding there behind the table? Listen, nobody told me I had to share a dressing room. Didn't they tell you about her? Her? What's the matter, sweetie? You don't like course girl? Just calm way the fuck down, laugh track. Like, I mean, even just saying the words Don Knotts gets a laugh. True. The, the laugh track throughout the entire episode is out of control. There's one point in particular that I'll get to, but yeah, it's unhinged. <laughs> so uh, during our little hiatus, I read the book Memoirs of a Muppets Writer by Joseph A. Bailey, who is one of the new writers who joined the show for season two after previously working on Sesame Street. And he pointed out that the number of seconds to curtain that Scooter announces at the beginning of the cold open changes each week. And it's actually timed to how long it takes to do that particular cold open. So it's an accurate depiction of how many seconds to curtain. That is amazing. I'm obsessed with that. And I can't believe I never knew it. Unless they pause for laughter for a second too long. If the audience just goes too wild, that's no longer accurate. But even knowing it's close enough makes me so happy. And it also answers the question that those of us who have worked in theater have had, which is like, why is he only getting a 15 second call? That's not useful. <laughs> well, he's not going on though. He just needs to know the show is starting. Right, right. Michal, you were starting to say something and I interrupted you about the laugh track. <laughs> I don't remember. I probably was just going to say that Don Knotts and Scooter doing a little take to the camera is um, maybe my favorite thing in this episode. It's very cute. Yeah. It's a little. And is that, our notes say that's Gorgon Heap. I thought it was Miss Kitty. It's not Miss Kitty. It's not Miss Kitty. Uh, I just assumed it was Miss Kitty because that's the joke that they always make with Miss Kitty. But Gorgon Heap as a chorus girl. Well. It's a fun look they give to the camera. We'll give them that. No, it is. And I mean, you know, it, it's a good it's a good look for Gorgon Heap, too. Sure. She wears it well. Absolutely. We learned, we learned something about Gorgon Heap's gender. I'm here for it. Yeah. And gender neutral dressing rooms is very progressive of the Muppet Show. Yeah. Sure. Species neutral. Gender neutral. Here for it. Mm-hmm. Stars and chorus girls. Very egalitarian. Because when has that ever gone badly? (laughs) (laughs) We also have a revamped theme song now with more arches and just with more Muppets in general performed by more puppeteers. They must just have more people on hand than they did. They don't seem to need the freaky animatronic uh, dead Muppet raising an arm situation anymore. But, but there are a couple. <laughs> I mean, well, we we have we still have some situations, but I'm I'm going to miss that Muppet cake bit just just a little. It's it's exciting to see the song grow up and have this big production, but yeah, it used to be just a baby theme song with freaky dead muppets. I I miss having the fuller version of the song. Like I like that this is a bigger production, but it's a shorter cut of the music and and I miss that. Also fair. Hmm. I, um, as we mentioned up top, I, you know, this is like, I've been watching the Muppet show for 40 years and now we have this 
weird podcast. So I make gifts and, and because of that, I was like, Oh, there's George. <laughs> there's, there's Mildred. There's Droop. It was very fun. There's the set shaking when they hit it too hard <laughs> with their arms. Um, but that was fun. And I actually, I watched this with my partner and I had already gone through it one. I'd already made the gift. So I'd already watched it pretty closely. And as the sign flies in, he said, wait, where, where are Kermit and Fozzie going? Because as the sign flies in Kermit and Fozzie, like run out of the way it's really and move cute into other people's <laughs> arches, um, which is very cute. But one of them is Bunsen, who is definitely one of those Muppets with the with the not fully articulated arms. And like Fozzie has to like shove him. It's just super <laughs> weird, but also cute. Um, but like, yeah, how many times have I watched that opening? I never noticed that before. So, you know, I love that it's still like revealing things after all these years. And and also like that attention to detail, which I assume they just couldn't do in season one, and and that now they're they're really able to do. Um, and it's a case where, so like watching it in a big TV on HD is revealing something kind of great. There are other cases of watching the big TV on HD reveals things we were never meant to be able to see, but that is a great one. And we've got a gonzo trumpet gag. Now his trumpet catches fire naturally. Just, he says, sorry after, and it's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Um, anything to report from our yay correspondent this week. In the opening, Kermit does not say yay, but he does make a very adorable yay face. Uh, also, perhaps notable, the sign that he pops out of, I believe, has been slightly redesigned. It's a, a bit of an upgrade. And because of that, he no longer needs to like disappear back into the O before the sign flies away. He gets to fly away with it, which is pretty cool. And very unsafe. Like He, <laughs> he, lean, no, but he leans out of it looking down the whole way up, which I just, it alarmed me. <laughs> I'm sure he is uh, appropriately clipped in. Well, no, not the clipping, more the 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 what's what's above him that he could hit his head. Ah, uh, fair. Yeah. Kermit in general, this is not really about the opening, but like Kermit seemed much more confident to me throughout the episode. Like he's still a bit of a dick, but it's the, his tone felt felt different in a way that I appreciate. He's he's becoming more the Kermit that I feel we know. Well, he also because part of the conceit of this episode is that he's giving more responsibilities to Fozzie. You know, once you've delegated things, you can, well, depending on your personality, you can either sort of like step back and relax because someone else has got it. Or you can like stress about the fact that you've delegated things to a moron who's definitely going to fuck it up. But Kermit seems to not be concerned about Fozzie about to fuck things up because it's Fozzie's fuck up, not his. Well, you can also sure. critique the job they're doing, which he does. And you can remind everybody that <laughs> you didn't plan this part. Uh, the person you delegated it to did, which he also does. He has a ways to go is what I'm saying before he can just relax. Before we totally transition into talking about this story that we're sort of talking around right now, uh, we should talk about the other big addition to the theme song is there's now a feature spotlight for Statler and Waldorf. And now there is no more featured spotlight for either Fozzie or the guest star. Yeah. And it was really weird because all they did was come in and sit down. There wasn't actually a joke. It it felt, it didn't feel that weird to me because it, we're watching it as the first episode. And I just felt like we're back, we're coming into the theater. But then I remembered that, um, in 1977, people watched this as the 11th episode, and so it must have just felt like a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally hopped on our Slack and was like, is there an edit? Like, can anyone figure out, is there, do they cut the joke by accident? <laughs> nope, that's the joke. They're late. 
They're late to the theater. What's also weird about it is that there's only one chair in the box because that's the only way that they can enter the box, which is just a you know funny puppetry thing that we're noticing because we're making a podcast. Oh, whereas I totally thought that was going to be the setup for a joke that then got cut. Oh, nope. But your version makes much more sense. In the way, because they're puppets. So they, a couple of times in this episode, people refer to the opening number as windmills of your mind, as opposed to the actual opening number, which I'm not even going to spoil for people who don't want to hear it. But (laughs) (laughs) so that it doesn't get stuck in your head a few minutes before it needs to. But they refer to the second number as the opening. And I wonder if Statler and Waldorf only saw windmills of your mind and referred to that as the opening number because they were late and they were being held at the door until the performers had finished uh, the nightmare. Fair, except Kermit Kermit and Fozzie also do that. Right. It's just a weird, uh, they must, the episode must've been short or they must've cut something from later. This is on the wiki too. and, And they don't have an answer to it, but they do, they do note it. Um, and and this is where I, I wish we I wish we saw them up in morsels because maybe they would have had an, like a, a real explanation. Though I doubt it because I I think that they have all the same sources of information that we have <laughs> via Google. So we'll just um, have to make stuff up. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I my guess is that either they had to cut something from later, and I don't know why they chose to put it where they put it, you know, or the episode just ran short for some reason because it's really weird because they do it multiple times. They refer to the what is the second number as the first number. And maybe the substitution also then meant that they didn't have time for whatever the Statler and Waldorf joke was supposed to be. And so they had to trim seconds there. Maybe I had a joke. It still felt (laughs) deliberate to me as a, as a we're back moment, but I don't know. I could be reading too much into it. I also wonder if maybe the song that's the actual opening number was originally intended as a UK spot. Uh, and that's why it just feels so out of place. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. We are. We, are. we better talk about this episode. I kind of want to back up because it's relevant here because something we noted a bunch during season one was how long it takes for us to actually see the guest star, except for that moment, that silent moment in the opening where they're surrounded by Muppets. Um, and that's a thing I really like about the dressing room bit is it gives us a moment with the guest star right up top because structurally the show hasn't really changed, right? The first number is still a non-human number. Um, which is what makes it really weird this episode that we get two of those in a row before we see Don Knotts. But having that dressing room skit is really nice because it lets us see the guest star immediately. And I really like that. Yeah, it's a good fix. And I suspect advertisers really liked it too. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. We're back. We have a segment for backstage and we get to start it with Fozzie answering the phone with the Muppet Show backstage, which is one of my favorite running gags in the entire universe. So in this episode, Kermit lets Fozzie help him plan the show. He does manage to delegate a little bit with some mixed success. Fozzie has suggested that the band should play Lullaby of Birdland, and the band is so into it. But unless you are um, watching on the DVDs, you would never know because Disney Plus not only cut Lullaby of Birdland, but cut any references to it from any of the backstage bits of the episode, which doesn't feel so significant in terms of episode length. But once you watch it in full on the DVD, (laughs) you realize that there's a little bit more backstage plot than you might have thought at first. Here's a clip, and it's a little longer than our clips usually are, because if you watch this on Disney+, Plus, you didn't get any of this, so you're welcome. Okay, green thing, the band has asked me to have a word with you. Yeah? Yeah, I refer specifically to the closing number. 
This is not my fault this time, see, because Fozzie Bear helped me plan tonight's show, and he was the one that wanted the band to play Lullaby of Birdland. That was Fozzie. So this is the bears doing, huh? You bet. Oh, hi, Floyd. Uh, uh, isn't our Lullaby of Birdland all right? All right. Hey, it's terrific. It is. Well, Lullaby of Birdland is a jazz classic. At last, we got some decent music in this gear. Why isn't the bear running things around here? Yeah, why isn't the bear running things around here? Yeah, why isn't the frog auditioning new comedians? Why isn't the bear keeping his mouth shut? So Kermit is still a little touchy. If you've been watching on Disney Plus, um, this might all be news to you. You might have thought this ent- that this entire episode was about Fozzie wearing sunglasses and not being able to see anything. Fozzie, my main bear. Mm, what it is. You know, everybody in the band is so blown away by the fact that you suggested we do Lullaby of Birdland on the show. Blown away? Is this that good? Good? Yes. Fozzie, you're so hip, you make us flip. In fact, we just took a vote and made you a bona fide registered hip dude. You have won your shades. My shades? Yeah, now these are the official Charlie Park Lives super cool sunglasses. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to Groovydom. Right. So Fozzie spends this episode in sunglasses. He also uh, gets to host the talk spot because he's helping with this episode. And then he and Don Knotts both wear sunglasses for the rest of the episode and don't see anything. It's funny to an extent... But when it edges into the territory of they are doing an impression of a blind person bumping into things, uh, that bit kind of doesn't age well. But Don Knotts' sunglasses are giant and green and wonderful, so I'll give him that. It aged particularly poorly because later in life, Don Knotts developed macular degeneration, uh, so lost most of his primary eyesight and had to wear very big, dark sunglasses in order to function in the world. Uh, So... Yikes. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. It's the weirdest edit. It's barely two minutes, but it really... I mean, I guess we all watched the DVD version first, right? Yeah. So, uh, listeners, let us know what your experience was. But, like, particularly the sunglasses bit, because in the in the Disney Plus cut, Floyd gives him the sunglasses for no reason, and then at the end of the episode takes them away for no reason, and especially at the end, they do like the beginning of the scene and the end of the scene with a very weird wipe in the middle of it. So it's very obvious that there's a cut there, whereas the rest of them, they just kind of lop off one end or the other. But yeah, it's, it, it's very strange. Typically the DVDs have had stuff cut from them and it's, it's just been an entire number excise. This is the first time I've experienced a cut like this where they've actually taken away story such as it is. I mean, whatever it's the Muppet show, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I did actually watch on Disney Plus first, um, not having realized what kind of cuts were made to it before I started watching. And I did think as they were getting to the closing that it was kind of a short episode, but it's really until they're ending the episode and they do that weird wipe, you don't necessarily notice that there's a problem. But then they do the weird wipe and you're like, oh, there's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So should we talk about Fozzie's sunglasses, which just do not look right on his face no matter how he wears them? So the first time that Fozzie puts on the sunglasses when Floyd gives them to him, they go on under his ears, which is not a way that they would actually go on <laughs> anyone's body. But I guess it was too hard to manipulate the puppet to put them on correctly. 
But then when he reappears wearing them in the talk spot and later in the episode, they're going over his ears. So they function the way that sunglasses are supposed to function, but his face is still not shaped in a way that really facilitates the wearing of glasses. So it just looks wrong either way. Okay. I didn't notice this, but it makes me feel better about my weird thing, Um, (laughs) which is Floyd. So I didn't notice this at all before ever in my life, but like not in season one. So I guess when he's not playing an instrument, Floyd only has one working hand, which is standard on a lot of Muppets. But for most of the, most of this episode, he has one hand, one finger is tied to his jacket by like a single thread. And I found it so distracting because <laughs> it just like f- is flopping around and it, I know this sounds insane, but like it, but it really breaks the illusion because you, you can you can see the way that it is attached badly, and and the way that it's sort of not alive. And then in the in the last scene on stage, it's different. Like it like three fingers are are attached and it looks normal, although it's still not moving, right? But it looks like a Muppet's hand often looks when it's not moving, and it looks it looked right, and I was like that that's how it's supposed to look, and it didn't bother me at all, and it it. I feel insane even saying this, but I made a gift of it. You can look in the show notes for yourself and tell me if I'm insane or not. I look forward to investigating this. I've never noticed this to be an issue. It was one of those, like, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And then it, then I just, I just kept staring at it. Speaking of things that once you notice them, you can't unnotice them. At the very end of this episode, a thing happened that blew my mind so much that I rewound it five times just to make sure that I wasn't just completely like, like my brain was melting out of my ears. So in the, the final scene on stage, Floyd is there talking to Kermit and Fozzie and Don Knotts. And then it cuts to the closing credit sequence. And the first shot is of Floyd in the pit, but we're still hearing the conversation bleeding into it. So Floyd is both on stage and in the pit. And then there's a shot of animal and then another shot of Floyd where he's not wearing his hat and he's in a different part of the pit with the trumpet girl. So it's too many Floyds, you guys. Too many (laughs) Floyds on the dance floor. There is also a gif of this in the show notes because Christy shared this with us on Slack and we all went a little bit insane. (laughs) And I, I, I did go so far as to go back to season one, Obviously, him being on stage and in the pit, it's like, okay, fine. you, I can overlook that continuity error. But the double Floyds in the pit is new. That was not in the season one closing. So I think part of what's going on here is that they do like rearrange where everyone sits in the pit for season two. And I think that maybe uh, this episode, I don't know if this is just like not the final version of the end credits that we'll see in season two. Like, uh, Gosh, this is the thing I should have looked up more before we got on mic. But I, I do know that there is, there is actual like a rearrangement of where people go in the pit. Uh, and this is not the last time that's going to happen over the course of the series. And so that may be part of the problem here. Season two music. As previously mentioned, the opening number is not the opening number that is referred to by any of the characters in the show. It's something else entirely, uh, which, uh, depending on your view, might be delightful, might be terrifying. 
Your mileage may vary. Feel like I'm made out of gingerbread. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Crumb picking, lip licking gingerbread. about rainy weather now I've finally got myself together now fresh out of the pan sweet gingerbread man Whew. Uh, whew. so yes this is a song called sweet gingerbread man and it has music by Michelle Legrand and lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman remember those names you're going to hear them very very soon uh, the song was written in 1968 and uh, introduced in a movie uh, from 1970 called The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart, which sounds like it would be like maybe a trippy cartoon. But no, it is a movie about a confused college student's experiences with sex, relationships and drugs in late 1960s New York City. And it starred Don Johnson. It was his film debut. I totally, after seeing this on The Muppet Show and reading that it was from this movie, just assumed that it was like some children's movie, maybe in French, that I hadn't heard of. And I went and looked up the clip. And it's literally like the music that accompanies what looks like a drug trip where he is like frolicking with two women, like handing out flowers to people running around town, stoned out of their minds. Wow, wow, wow. I think there's a whole thing where... For those of us who were too young to have lived through the 60s, we hear the phrase psychedelic music and picture something like White Rabbit or Inagata DeVita. But actually, this is <laughs> what a lot of psychedelic music sounds like. Feel like I'm at a gingerbread? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. Like, learning that helped me with the song. I I don't hate the song. I hate the staging of the song. It. I. This is the when I set up top the nightmare fuel. Um. I. Ju- I just find them so creepy. It. Ju- it's. It's four gingerbread dancers, uh, backing a gingerbread puppet. And this is the one good thing I will say about it. it two good things. The the illusion of the dancers is very clever. It's these full body costumes and they, they do look very flat though. Watching it on my TV, I did spot a bit of a human leg at one point, <laughs> which, which did not make it better. <laughs> like if you bite hard enough, you'll crunch on their bones. <laughs> not, a, not okay. Um, and, and, and then downstage is this, is this um, gingerbread puppet. And the, the forced perspective is really cool because like the, the puppet, which is, you know, hand sized, does look to be about the same size as the dancers, which are human sized. So that is, that is, that is Muppet magic. And I love it. Um, but, oh, I find them so, so creepy. Um, obviously the dancers mouths don't move, but even more than, than the mutations, like they are very clearly singing at us somehow with their gingerbread minds. And even they're projecting even the, their thoughts into your brain somehow. It's, it's not okay. And even the puppet, like I don't find him, Charming, well, beady red eyes. It's so disturbing. It's it's a monster, and I hate it. <laughs> I'm so. I mean, at least it's not Jerry Nelson's falsetto. But I just, I actually, I, I mean, the song. Like it's. I was chair dancing just now. Like the song is very catchy, but I don't. I do not like this number. Um, it's choreographed by Jillian Lynn. So insert your own. You know, cats, Starlight Express, Gingerbread joke. I Would you just, have accepted this number more readily if it was in the context of a Christmas special? No, no, not with these puppets. 
It, they creep me out. I don't like them. I'm more creeped out by the dancers than I am the puppet. Yeah, no, puppet, for sure. I, I can handle, but the non-moving mouths is a deal breaker. And the I way mean, that they move, I mean, it's it's clever because they, I mean, they move like like animated gingerbread would move, but I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. For what it's worth, I didn't mind the puppets at all, but the song, while catchy, has nightmarish lyrics, and I've listened to the song, I don't know, roughly twenty billion times this week. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and you don't get used to it, and they don't get better. I appreciate that we all seem to dislike different elements of this sketch. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, the, the puppet is not the most appealing thing I've ever seen with the beady red eyes. But also, it's more that this is such an earworm. I have been singing it for weeks. And here's what helps me. Um, <laughs> if you assume that Sweet Gingerbread Man is... An exclamation, like great googly moogly. <laughs> sweet, merciful crap, sweet gingerbread man. Sweet, that would work man. if all the rest of the lyrics weren't about eating crumbly, tan, sticky, icky. Ugh. Okay, but now I want there to be a version where somebody has bleeped out either gingerbread or man, like sweet, beep, bitty, beep. I mean, we have the technology. Yeah. <laughs> I was really hoping to find another version of this where Cookie Monster sang it, and that did not exist. But I did find a different <laughs> Cookie Monster gingerbread song, which is equally but differently disturbing, and we'll put that oh, in the show notes. Y'all, go to the show notes. What's less than a single entendre? <laughs> 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 I mean, crumb picking, lip licking gingerbread. Ugh. And it's a thing that you feel like. <laughs> I, I feel like I have been picked for crumbs. Twirling a cane made of peppermint. Nice, icky, hand-sticky peppermint. Absolutely not. No, I want none of that. (laughs) So because I found this song just so totally mystifying, I, of course, needed to know everything about it. Also, (laughs) totally randomly, one of my Facebook friends, the same day that I watched this episode, shared a video of the original artist, the Mike Kerm Congregation, performing this on some other variety show on Facebook. Uh, and I was just like, why is this song haunting me? Um, but so that video Kerm- is mesmerizing. And again, I will say for the 10th time, go to the show notes and watch yeah, it because yeah. it's amazing. So the Mike Curb congregation is literally like a professional show choir. They appear to be all ages because there's definitely like kids, like Brady Bunch age kids, but oh, also yeah. adults. And there's, well, I don't know, 15, 20 of them on risers doing the step touch just like i did in seventh grade it is uh, i i just i did not live through this era i do not understand the 70s um but what makes it maybe a little more understandable is uh so once you start down this rabbit hole you eventually get to mike curb himself who was uh the president of a record label still is a president of his own record label now uh, but at the time of one of the major labels i want to say universal but i might have that wrong And he uh, put this together, and they did original songs like this, but also did a lot of covers. If you wanted the Beatles, but like less sexy and maybe more Christian, I don't know. uh, You could hear the Mike Curb Congregation, and like who wouldn't want to hear the Mike Curb Congregation sing Let It Be? This group also performed backup for other singers, and the one that maybe makes the most sense is they were the group that did the backup on the Sammy Davis Jr. recording of Candyman, which shares a lot of his DNA with this song. And it's almost like maybe that song was a big hit. And so they tried to figure out how to do the next Candyman, And this is what they came up with. Sammy Davis Jr. Would then later go on to cover gingerbread man 
it's just like it's just a vicious circle. But this song, so popular that it got covers by all sorts of folks: Bobby Sherman, Jack Jones, Sarah Vaughn. Like I don't, I don't get what? it. Sorry, I'm spiraling. Right? Yes. Wait. Uh, anyway, didn't Candyman uh, follow this? Because oh, did it? Yeah, Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory was 1971. So, so this yeah, but this song is 1968. That- I thought. Right, so Candyman right. was afterwards. Oh, but the song didn't come out till 1970. Oh. Yeah. But time is an illusion. We've broken, David. You have totally broken me. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. None of it makes sense. Uh, let's hear what it sounds like when the Mike Curb congregation sings it, though. Why though? I I do like they they give it a slightly different rhythm than the Muppets do, which I think serves the song well. I mean, theirs is theirs is deeply 1968 in a way that I love. Um, I, I was torn between clipping that part and clipping uh, a part that is in the Muppet version just to hear the different arrangement because they do like a sort of back and forth thing between the men and the women that I really like. But I I wanted everyone to hear the bridge where they sing about peace for all the world and how they wouldn't trade being a gingerbread man for peace for all the world. Because what? Because it's better to be licky sticky, crumbly bumbly. (laughs) In the movie, we do hear the bridge, but we do not hear the icky sticky peppermint part. No, but we still hear the crumbled lick crumb pick and lip. Like, don't make me say it again. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm just just saying that there, you know, that to me, the icky sticky peppermint is the worst. I don't know if it's actually the worst, but anyway, Alan and Marilyn Bergman are a very particular kind of lyricist team. Uh, they did a lot of translations from French, which is why I just sort of assumed that this was one of them, uh, because it certainly reads like a translation. <laughs> uh but you know what? Barbara Streisand sure loves them and recorded a lot of their songs, including a whole album devoted to their music. So uh, they're laughing all the way to the bank. All right. Now for not quite a palate cleanser. <laughs> Let's call it a palate exfoliator. Sweeping past the minutes of its face, see that the world is like an apple whirling silently in space, just like the circles that you find there in the windmills of your mind, just like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own, feet down a hollow to a cavern where the sun is never shown, just like a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream, or like the ripples from a pebble someone tosses in a stream, cause like the clock was hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face, see that the world is like an apple whirling silently in space, just like the circles that you find there in the windmills of your mind, Man, aren't you all glad that he didn't choose to use his falsetto for this? Aren't you all glad that there is anxiety medication now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yes. Uh, so, so this is The Windmills of Your Mind. Uh, music by Le- Michelle Legrand, lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Uh, there must have been like a BOGO sale on song rights that week. This is our first best song Oscar winner of the season. Uh, it was 
uh, written for and introduced in the film The Thomas Crown Affair, also from 1968, uh, as sung by uh, Noel Harrison, son of noted brilliant singer Rex Harrison. Interestingly, I, I read a funny story about this song, which is that it was written to replace, so when, when they made The Thomas Crown Affair, there's a sequence in it where uh, Thomas Crown is on a hang glider or something of that nature. And uh, they originally cut it with uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. And they realized like, yeah, that's probably going to be expensive. We should have a, a song written for it instead. So uh, so this was written to replace Strawberry Fields Forever. And I don't know whether that information was fed to uh, the songwriters, but I, I just think it's sort of wacky and fun. Um, it's a great and, movie, by the way, if any of you have never seen it. It's, it uh, you know, it's sort of a classic 60s spy caper. Very stylish, very sexy. Um, and there have been several versions of it, uh, including a Dusty Springfield version that uh, charted uh, on the Hot 100 at number 31 and number three on the adult contemporary chart. And other notable versions of it include Jose Feliciano, who actually was the one to perform it at the Oscars because Noel Harrison couldn't get out of another gig. <laughs> and uh, multiple versions by Johnny Mathis. Uh, Sting re-recorded it for the remake of Thomas Crown Affair in the 90s. It was also performed by me in the ninth grade auditions uh, for the talent show. And they didn't choose <laughs> me. Aww. And I'm still salty about it. But uh, don't cry for me, Argentina, because uh, I won the senior year talent show with my band. We won most entertaining. So, what was your band's name? Uh, free lunch. We uh, we came together in an economics class, and we thought the whole principle of there's no such thing as a free lunch was funny. So we, we were like, "There is now, bitches." <laughs> Perfect band name. <laughs> yeah, we, we we played a video killed the radio star. It was a good time. So let's talk about the the actual scenario of the song. This is one of the sketches that is like deeply imprinted on me since childhood. This is um this one is called the screaming thing that I did not know until today. Um, but uh, he he begins by t- looking into the camera and telling us that on the outside he is very calm and relaxed, but on the inside, and then he sings this number while he is running. He has um, his legs spin. Um, and uh, and there's like a scrolling background behind him. And that's basically the whole joke. He is running and he is getting faster and faster and faster and going crazier and crazier until he crashes into a windmill. And then he we see him back in his chair and, and he reminds us that on the outside, he's really very, very calm. And then he screams and runs away and uh, reappears in Statler and Waldorf's box and then fall, runs out of it and <laughs> I guess falls to his death. <laughs> or falls to great it falls to great injury and then winds up in vet's hospital, which we'll get to in a little bit. Other people have fallen out of that balcony. Do we have a clip of the original version of the song? We do. We do. Just because I feel like part of the joke is also that the original version of the song is not this frantic tempo. And so maybe it'll make a little more sense if we hear how it originally sounded. Hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind Keys that jingle in your pocket, words that jangle in your head Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along the shore and leave their footprints in the sand Is the sound of distant drumming just the fingers of your hand? Pictures hanging how serene. 
Hmm? And it's, uh, it was such a hugely popular song that I think for the audience in 1977, like just hearing that song performed this way was itself like very, very funny. Right. But it's interesting because I mean, I, I knew the Muppet version first and for many, many years, but it, even to hear the original, it does have this thing where it never stops. Right. Like it's, he, he's ha- in my understanding of the lyrics, right? He is haunted by these memories. Yeah. yeah. Right. Actually, the, it's funny that you mentioned that because I found a really great piece on a website called the mix review.org uh, breaking down from a music theory standpoint, how this song has sort of a spiritual link to autumn leaves. And we talked about autumn leaves uh, in a season one episode with a, a Wayne and Wanda sketch. And, Autumn Leaves is a song that's used to teach the circle of fifths, which is sort of a circular chord progression. <laughs> if you are a music theory nerd at all, it, it's worth looking up and, and reading because it articulates exactly why I love this song. Is mm. it you you feel the words in it in the way yeah. it sort of churns? It reminds me a little bit of um, Pretty Women from Swingy Todd. Ooh. In, in the way it sort of keeps lurching forward. It's not quite yeah. the same because that's much more sinister, but. Um, but yeah, so so to it's a cute it's a cute gimmick, right? And and this is for whatever reason, like I mean, I just found this hilarious as a child, and it stuck with me. It's in the Muppet Show book, which we talked about in season one, and it's a great bit of graphic design. We'll put a picture in the show notes. Um, the way that they sort of capture this in a still image with text. Um, so yeah, I, I love this. I've always loved this. I was so happy to see this so early in the season. So to me, the the main Muppet here looks a lot like Shaky Sanchez, who you might remember from. I've got you under my skin. Uh, and given how similar their temperaments are, you sort of wonder why they didn't just slap this leg onto Shaky and, and make him a recurring character. Instead of creating a whole new character who's just called Screaming Thing. It's true. Which I relate to on a deep <laughs> spiritual level. Like, Adam, this is a, a number that was very much imprinted on me. I remembered every beat of it. Uh, but I was very distracted because I spent a lot of it trying to count his legs as they went around to figure out if it was a swastika. I had that exact same experience. It was very distracting. I didn't notice till you pointed it out. But yeah, no, I see it. For the record, there are only three of them, so it's not a swastika. But like, they could have chosen a slightly different angle to the knees to you know, make that better. And it does bother me in, in, in let's be pedantic about, about the Muppet show. When he shows up in vet's hospital, like those are his legs. Like the, the three (laughs) things on one side of his body are his legs. And I, I always thought that like, that was, it was meant to be like, I, I always understood that. Yes, that's what the puppet was, but that that was meant to create an illusion of him running really fast. And that if we saw him still, he would have normal legs on both sides of his body. But then we see him in Vets Hospital, and there's like jokes about his legs being a wheel. And I didn't like that at all. I appreciate that they it, make the most of it. He's got three well, feet. What do you yeah. make of it? About a yard. But Can't argue with that. He, he doesn't. He only runs. I guess, yeah, he's a unicycle. He's like a unicycle. He's got a guy's hand up his no back. <laughs> <laughs> but no wonder he's so stressed he can never stop running or he'll, he'll lose his balance. Anyway, I think this is an all-time classic, excellent Muppet Show sketch, and I'm so glad we got to watch it together. Yeah. So, uh, what's in the UK spot, you're asking, this week? Uh, Is it a jar of moonshine uh, playing Deliverance? No. For once, it is something exceedingly British. (laughs) But I haven't a shirt, but my people are well off, you know. Nearly everyone knows me from Smith to Lord Rosebery. I'm Burlington Bertie from Boo. 
I pose, though ironical shows. That's my monocle, holds up my face, keeps it in place, stops it from slipping away. Cigars! I smoke thousands, I usually deal in the strand. But you've got to take care when you're getting them there, or some idiot might stand on your hand. Oh, it in Bertie, I rise at 10.30, then Buckingham Palace, I view. This is definitely the spot that I was referring to where the laugh track is just completely in its own world. I just, it's, I can't even point to what they're laughing at. Well, they're in their own world and their world is, you know, the Victorian era. Sure. Sure. Oh yeah. So apparently this song uh, killed uh, back in the day and back in the day is uh, 1915 in London. Uh, so the song, it benefits uh, to know a little bit of context about it. The song is actually a parody of another song pre-1915, just called Burlington Birdie. And the original song was about a well-to-do wastrel, uh, whereas this one is a- about a poor guy who is putting on airs thinking that he's a rich guy. And it was written for... a male impersonator named Ella Shields uh, written for her by her husband, William Hargreaves. And uh, I definitely recommend looking up and reading about Ella Shields because she's really interesting. She was an American vaudevillian in London. I a fun bit of information. She appeared in 1910 at the opening night of the London Palladium, future final resting place of Bruce Forsyth. And it was around that time that she became a male impersonator and did it sort of to like fill in for an, an actual guy in a music hall duo and then just found that it, it was her shtick and stuck with it. And uh, so the Burlington Birdie bit was kind of her signature thing for a long time. And through the 1910s and 20s, basically until the Depression, uh, she toured the world doing the Burlington Birdie shtick. And uh, yeah, and then went through a sort of period of obscurity. She worked at a Macy's jewelry counter and then had a resurgence uh, after World War II. And she actually crossed paths with a young Julie Andrews in the late 1940s at a Royal Command performance. And Julie Andrews actually paid tribute to her uh, in the movie Star uh, doing this very number. And uh, it's speculated that this actually also uh, was used as a role model for uh, Victor Victoria. Uh, but the wildest thing that I came across is that in August 1952, Ella Shields, in her final performance of this song, uh, was very dramatic. And where it, uh, the song was written, you know, I'm Burlington Birdie, she began with, I was Burlington Birdie. And when she finished the song, she collapsed on stage and died three days later. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Holy heck. Yeah. Yeah, intense. Uh, so yeah, so we have none of that context here. This is just a actually male presenting Muppet. Just kind of looks like a well-to-do-ish uh, English gentleman. He doesn't look particularly run down either. So there's not a lot of joke there. So it's, it's an odd choice, I think, all around. I appreciate it much more now that you've given us this explanation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's the first time that I, I was genuinely baffled by a number. Like, I just was like, I feel like I am missing about 12 things. And turns out, yeah. 
I mean, I guess if she was still performing it in the 50s, and that's like, you know, 25 years before this, it's conceivable that at least the British audience would be familiar enough with the song to be able to like fill in the blanks for themselves, I guess. I mean, the movie Star came out in 68, but it was also a huge flop. So I don't know like that that did anything to help people remember this song. Also, that film is unwatchable. It's terrible. It's so long and boring. <laughs> well, there you go. Nary a jug band in sight. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful, careful what you wish for. What you, wish for. <laughs> <laughs> you had to choose between only jug bands or only music hall. Like that is, that is a tough choice. Oof. I mean, can I choose the Ella Shields biopic? Let's move on to something that's way more straightforward. (laughs) I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear puppies cry. I watch you grow. You'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Ah, so cute. I love it. I I love it so much. We have to give the explanation before you give the background on the song, because otherwise we're just going to be squealing, puppy. It's Ralph and a puppy. It's a puppy. It's, it's Ralph and a puppy. Uh, An actual yeah. puppy. A very like good a real, puppy. <laughs> I almost said a human puppy. Yeah. <laughs> we call those children, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be exciting to me. Uh, it's Ralph and a real live dog, not a Muppet puppy. dog. Some kind of spaniel, right? Like a maybe a cocker spaniel? Yeah, I think spaniel? so. Yeah, and he's, and he's holding it and he's petting it. And it's so cute. So uh, th- th- this is a very well-known song, so we won't have to go into too much detail, but I did learn a couple of interesting things about it. Uh, it was written by uh, Bob Thiel under the pen name George Douglas and George David Weiss. It was, uh, so it was recorded in 1967, and it was sabotaged by the president of the record label because Louis Armstrong, who recorded it, had a huge hit in 1964 with his cover of the song Hello, Dolly. And this guy, Larry Newton, who was the president of ABC Records, wanted another like up-tempo Dixieland. Like he wanted a second Hello, Dolly. And when he heard that this was like a mellow ballad, he got really mad and refused to promote the song. So the song was not a hit at the time. It actually, it only made it as far as number 16 on our, our old friend, the bubbling under chart. And the song found a resurgence uh, after the movie Good Morning Vietnam came out in 1987. And it was on the soundtrack for that. And I mean, I remember it being on the radio a lot as a child. It was was everywhere because of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw that movie once, but I played that soundtrack constantly. (laughs) And that's how I know it primarily. Yeah. And the only reason the song kind of stayed in the popular consciousness in the meantime is even though it only made it as far as the bubbling under chart in America, it uh, topped the UK chart. And uh, Louis Armstrong was actually the oldest man to top the UK charts at the time, which was a record broken by Tom Jones much, much later in 2009. 
Um, and one other thing I want to point out about this song, which is just one of those things that I find funny, is that the the main melody is the same as a Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and the alphabet song. So you know, oh my god! Sometimes I'll find myself going, oh e, goodness, C D E F G H I J K L M N O P, and I think to myself, you know, huh? <laughs> it's one of those I never that noticed that. Once you, once you know it, you can't. Uh, like unhear it uh so yeah are we gonna address the fact that the dog appears to be drugged yeah this came up in our house too i, I mean puppies do sleep a lot and it's a very small puppy but there's also a really good chance that it was drugged because <laughs> it was the 70s or they just i mean there's also a very good chance that jim and frank were also drugged <laughs> because it was the 70s <laughs> yeah i just meant the standards for animal treatment on set were different not that the dog was doing quaaludes but also who knows this came up in our house too and another suggestion was that maybe they just ran the puppy around the studio and tired it out so now it's just a very sleepy puppy yeah it's it's not hard to make tiny puppies <laughs> tired i don't know it's real cute it's really all i care about like it should it should be boring it should get old Nobody's and i guess if you're a not puppy. a dog person it could but like i just i and i watched it so many times this week mm-hmm. and i never get tired of it well, it's also like the perfect Rolf song, even if the puppy wasn't there. It just so fits both his voice and his sort of like status that it just uh, it all works really perfectly. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. The only lyric change is the word babies to the word puppies. Nothing else is different, but it's such a it's such a great touch. It's I love beautiful. It. All right. Shall we onward to Lullaby Birdland? If we must. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're watching the full version from the DVD and you get the full context for the uh, Floyd and Fozzie plot, uh, it culminates in a performance of Lullaby of Birdland. So yeah, so it's the the Electric Mayhem playing, but uh, because Floyd uh, is on vibraphone, they need a bass player, and their bass player is uh, Don Knotts, who uh, is, as it turns out, not a bass player. Who's there because Fozzie said, I will find you a bass player. Yes. And who's there in an exploding zoot suit, which I'm into. So anyway, uh, Don obviously is not a good bass player. <laughs> he starts first by trying to bow the bass, which is not the way you play an upright bass for this kind of song. And then when he goes to pluck the bass, he plucks uh, in the wrong tempo. Uh, a little bit reminiscent of Fever, honestly, from the Rita Moreno episode. And then it just it all just devolves from there. But when, when Floyd takes away Fozzie's sunglasses, it's because... Fozzie got him the bum bass player. Speaking of the sunglasses, uh, so this is is a jazz standard, uh, and the music was written by George Shearing, uh, who was a British jazz pianist and uh, was famously and notably blind, and so more often than not was wearing sunglasses, and that that just occurred to me as a strange, somewhat unfortunate connection. Yeah, it was written for Morris Levy, who was the owner of the real New York jazz club Birdland. They briefly had a a radio show and he wanted a theme song. 
and uh, Morisavi actually gets a songwriting credit on it with George Shearing, even though George Shearing just wrote it. It was another one of those I was in the room kind of situations. And uh, Birdland uh, still exists. The original one was around from 1949 to 1965. uh, And then it was revived in 1985 and it's bopped around different locations in New York City since. Former Muppeturgy guest star Robbie Rizal has a show coming up in Birdland uh, right after Thanksgiving. And if that is announced by the time that this episode is hitting your podcast feeds, we will have the information in your show notes. Fantastic. Muppet Wiki also points out that uh, Manamana scats a portion of this song in the middle of Manamana, the Muppet show version of it. So, I guess so. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess no one noticed because they didn't have to cut it. Yeah. And that's the music. What a weird thing to not get the rights. Like with all the things that got restored that were cut from the DVDs that are on Disney plus, this is the thing that they lost the rights to. I just find fascinating. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey. What? And get out of show business. All right. Let's talk about some show business. First, we've got our beast of the week, or you might want to call it Don Knotts and the trouble with tribbles. Don Knotts is uh, wearing a lab coat. So, you know, he's got some authority or he's doing a children's zoology show introducing you to different kinds of animals or maybe both. Uh, He unveils an animal that was just discovered or was it the first born in captivity? I don't remember. It's a tiny little fuzzball. It's got eyes and fangs and some little stalks coming out of its head like a little proto fizz gig. It'll be a while until Dark Crystal. (laughs) But it's, it's... very, very cute, and it's um, played with great zeal by Frank Oz. There's some fun physical comedy from Don Knotts while this little being escapes its cage and jumps all over him, blows in his ear, which is very intimate, as we've discussed. This is all interrupted when the baby's mother, uh, the monster known as Mean Mama, shows up and uh, is performed here by Richard Hunt. It's a fun little segment. I love this. This is uh, like Windmills of the Mind, one of the sketches that I just uh, remembered immediately as soon as like it started. I could sort of sing along with the beats, as it were. And uh, it feels to me like it might have been written as a Bunsen Honeydew sketch that got repurposed for Don Knotts. Uh, but it works so perfectly with what Don is good at. It's just, uh, I think it's like the ideal use of a guest star in a Muppet Show sketch. Yeah, it's not just that he has an elastic face. It's like his whole body is reacting and puppeteering in a way. And because the little baby is so small that there are times when he's holding in his hand, he ends up puppeteering the Muppet, which, uh, you know, part of me is like, well, maybe that's just a holdover from his ventriloquism days. But I think it's just that he's, you know, a good actor who can take direction. Um, But it works. And like you... You don't even think about the fact that he has picked up this puppet, which is now not attached to the hand of the original puppeteer. I thought about it a little. <laughs> but he's really committed to it. It's really fun to see. He is. He is. He was really, he, he was really squishing it. I was, I was actually, I was concerned for it. <laughs> <laughs> they came out of it okay. And Mean Mama, who uh, gets introduced here, becomes a cherished figure in the Muppet cast. Still, still trucking along. We saw her in Muppets Now. So like, you know, the most current Muppet Show project. Yeah. She's still there. Now. Right now. 
<laughs> Can't get more current than now. Assuming that oh. this episode drops before Haunted Mansion, it may not actually be. Oh, Matt. Then the Muppets Now will have been then. They got to change the name. <laughs> Unless they do a second season, which case it will be Muppets Now and Again. <laughs> Muppets Every Now and Then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. We better move on. In Veterinarian's Hospital, we've got a new piggy sculpt, which is exciting, and a new Janice voice. And we've got the same old jokes, which I'm not complaining about. Uh, they've got the screaming thing as a patient and making jokes about his three legs. And uh, Piggy falling over herself laughing at her own jokes continues to be delightful, as with last season. Richard Hunt's Janice voice is new, and it's not quite there, but uh, I'm on board. It's interesting because here you can hear Richard Hunt trying to do the Aaron Oscar voice. Mm-hmm. And it's like he hasn't quite decided or been given the freedom or direction to develop his own voice. So I'm curious if there'll be just one episode when suddenly it flips or if there will be sort of a gradual transition. Yeah, well, he will make it his own. We'll we'll find out whether it's uh, all at once. Stay tuned. So this is a minor thing, but you know when the sketch begins... Uh, as has become custom, Piggy is butting around with one of the medical implements. And this time it's it's like a circular mirror like you would have uh, behind the light bulb of a headlamp. But the mirror is very clearly broken. And I just wonder what's going on with the props department. <laughs> We've got the Swedish chef making the fishy chowder. And he's strumming his ladle like it's a mandolin, which is wonderful. He also gets grabbed by the fishy from inside the chowder who pulls his face into the pot and then the chef stops moving for a second while his face is in the water which i found disturbing did anybody else worry that the chef had drowned i mean no but if he did he deserved it (laughs) it's true (laughs) throw a live fish into that chowder you're kind of coming i guess this is where like this episode like i i found both vet's hospital and the swedish chef like just kind of (laughs) bad And they're both they're both sketches that I traditionally love, um, and like I know they're going to get better, and they were better in season one. So it's just like it was weird, this weird experience of of like, you know, oh the the new opening, the dressing room bit, and you know, oh a, a puppy, <laughs> and windmills of your mind, and oh this is a bad that's hospital and a bad Swedish chef. Like it was a weird, it was just a weird experience watching this episode because I was really excited to get to season two, and then it was kind of a letdown for me. Um, I mean, I'm always happy to be, to be watching the Muppet Show. Um, words I may regret in a couple of weeks when we get to. I won't spoil it. Um, Rich Little. Yes. <laughs> I mean, um, there's a lot in this episode that has felt new, and then to see them do the same shtick might feel like a letdown, even if it's it's fun shtick. Yeah, but also, like, I think I just felt not great versions of the same because, and also, like, I'm excited to have Jerry Jewell as that writer. I know that there are great Swedish Chef and Vets Hospitals to come, so it was a bit of a bummer. I think there's also like a reason that this was this episode aired 11th and not first. <laughs> they were very smart. Fair enough. Well, we have come to the end of our new format. Before we go, does anyone have final thoughts about this episode? So after looking at the same audience shot with m- mostly dead Muppets, was it mostly about half dead Muppets? It wasn't mostly, but they really drew the eye. Many of the Muppets in that audience shot were not moving. And now we have a new audience shot where... Some of the Muppets in the audience are not moving. Um, 
And the place that my eye went was a dead droop. Not exactly center, but like center left. But it is weird because they, they, they made the new audience shot and it feels much fuller to me, but there are still dead Muppets right in the middle, which I find very weird. And off to the side is the, I think it's the guru who is also not moving and he's way off to the side, but it's the guru. So he really draws the eye because he looks nothing like anybody else. Yeah. Very strange. So some of the Cleveland Muppets will live on and some of them are buried have in this audience. Died. <laughs> Droop is also in the opening arches. He's very high up, but if you look for him, he is there. This show is awful. Terrible. Disgusting. See you next week. Of course. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I don't know. Cut all those things I just said. I'm really sleepy, you guys.